This message by Sam Shin, entitled Supernatural Unity, was recorded at Wellspring Church on February 3, 2019. The text for this message is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 19. And uh, you can turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We are taking a one-week break from the book of Nehemiah this week. And for our sermon this morning, we will be reading from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 19. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So far, the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. So as Chad said, we are um, taking one week. I wouldn't consider it a break, but I would say a, uh, a little bit of a context build, you might say. And... Nehemiah, in chapters uh, 2 and 3 and 4, is about to build the wall. And before we talk about building walls, I thought I would talk about breaking down walls. Uh, And the breaking down of these walls, which in every way is what Nehemiah is doing, figuratively speaking, is to produce what we will see here, what I would describe as supernatural unity meaning a unity that cannot happen apart from some sort of external intervention that goes beyond what normative social ideas and norms would allow someone to be able to unite under, a banner under. And so when we look at Ephesians, in particular this text, there are um, there is one cause of this unity, And within that one cause, two subsets. So the cause is what I think most of you would probably venture to guess is the gospel. And the subsets of this cause is first that the gospel is at the center of of our identity. And that's in verses 11 through 13. And then second is that the gospel is at the center of our unity. And that's in verses 14 through 19. So like to first look at the gospel at the center of our, our identity in verses 11 to 13. I'm going to read that again. And then I'm going to point you to another passage of scripture that sort of uh, enlightens us further on this passage in particular. Therefore, 
Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were one, uh, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I'm also going to ask you to turn to Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. And in this particular text of the Bible, specifically Jesus is the one who is the speaker here. He's talking to the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, and he's referring to the different churches, seven churches. And specifically in this passage, He's talking to the Ephesian church, this church that Paul is writing to. So very much this will provide a little bit of the context of what Paul is writing about in Ephesians. And he says this, Jesus says this, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So there are, in this passage, in Revelation, he says this about this particular church that Paul's writing to in Ephesians. He says a few things about the things they do well. The first thing they do well is that they produce good works. They are very active in many different ways. He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. They're very faithful. They endure. They're patient. Very good things. Qualities that you would want from a church. And probably the, the vast amount of works, whether it's feeding the poor, caring for one another, providing meals, um, regularly meeting together, giving. So the many things that you would think of as what would typify a church that is producing good works. This is the Ephesian church, and Jesus acknowledges that. Secondly, they had good doctrine. They were active in learning. He says in verse 2, you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And so for those, for this church, when there were false teachers coming into it, they were so adept at what was true based on God's word, because they knew it, they understood it, they probably studied it. So much so, so that Jesus said, you're good at evaluating who brings false doctrine into this church. Thirdly, he says that they are sacrificers. They are good sufferers. In verse 3, you are bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So they've been faithful in that way. They have sacrificed. They have really um, pressed through, been enduring when it was difficult. But there is one area that they fell short, and it's in verse 4. I don't actually have it on screen, I think, but if you are looking at your Bible in Revelation 2, verse 4, it says this, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, that just seems so odd in the midst of what they do so well. Because you would think a church that is doing good works actually has good teaching and is very devoted to God's word and is sacrificing and even suffering for Christ. 
How is it that that group of people can actually forget Christ? Can forget who saved them? What, what drew them to Christ in the first place? How that, how can that be? I remember when I was, uh, in college, uh, very, you know, this is early, very early on in my development of life and faith. And you go to college meetings, large group meetings, um, faith fellowships, and you go to retreats and there was often a, um, just a lot of emotional response. You know, people were very enthusiastic to worship, to pray. But then the week comes along, and and as the week comes along, the high drops away, and then the low comes. And you think, well, now I need a retreat. I need a revival meeting. You go to something like that, and then the high comes back. And then the low comes. And, and suddenly the, there was a, a phrase that a lot of people used to say is, I've lost my first love of being a Christian. I don't know if you ever experienced that. But... That idea, that thinking, that processing of faith stems from this understanding that faith is about a feeling or it's about how I feel in the moment. And when my heart is not there and I'm going through the motions and I feel dry. And so as Christians, we can so often use these type of words and this type of lingo to describe what it means to be a Christian. And that's sort of how the Ephesian church was operating. They were doing all the works of being a Christian, but they thought that first love was about having a, an emotive feeling, a romantic feeling, you might say, towards Christ. Is that what Jesus is talking about when he says, you've lost your first love? To get the answer to that question, I think we got to go back to this passage in Ephesians to see what Paul's referring to. And if you look at those first two verses, there's a verb that comes out, and it really it's, a, and it's an imperative verb. It's, it's a command. And it's one that you could see why Paul says this, especially in light of what Jesus is talking about in Revelation. He says, remember. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that, in other words, you were, you were not God's people. You were outsiders. You weren't Jews. You weren't receivers of a promise. Instead, you were way outside, and yet God still brought you in. So you have to remember that you are, you're a stranger. You were once a stranger. As well, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope. The Ephesians forgot that when they trusted in Christ, they decided, they were firm in conviction, but then life happened and things became busy. They were doing Christian things such as going to worship, singing songs, caring for the poor even, telling people maybe about Jesus. And again, Jesus says, I know your works. These are good things. So Jesus isn't saying all that is bad. But what is bad is the motivation upon which all these things are happening and the forgetting 
of what was central. They regularly forgot the why they were doing these things. They forgot why they were gathering. And even if their desire was to be fed, and sometimes we, again, we use that type of language. I, I'm looking for a church to be fed at. Or I, I want a church to have a strong children's program. And when you perhaps decided whether this is your church or you're in the process of looking for a church, there are many factors that you might be considering. And while all of them are factors, but if it's the underlying factor, that will be borne out not just when you come, but what your heart is like as you're serving, as you're thinking, as you're sitting, as you're listening. Slowly, consumerism takes over, and what matters most is not Christ, but how do I feel? Are my felt needs being met? And in that, it is possible, actually, to do many things apart from Christ. If these things are made the end goal of our faith, then our hearts can grow hard to Jesus. It is possible. It does happen. How does this happen? Well, the Ephesian church, they see that they're doing all of these things, but there's no change. And when there's no change and progress, you know what happens to people like us? We become apathetic or we become embittered. It's one of two. We slowly either just go through the motions and just decide, well, as long as I'm getting at the least of what I can get done, I'm okay. Or we feel the frustration of it all and the burden. And as that happens, slowly our hearts become hard. Not just to other people, but ultimately to Christ himself. And it happens when we think that we're paying our dues and we deserve better treatment. Or maybe we grow hard to Jesus. And so when trials come our way, we start thinking to ourselves, well, Jesus, I've I've done all of these things. Why am I going through this? It shouldn't be this way. So how do you get out of this scenario? It sounds like a really dastardly downward spiral. Paul tells us again through this, this one word in verses 11 through 12, remember, remember the gospel. Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh that you were brought near. Remember that you were strangers, separated. You have to remember. Paul commands us twice and he says, this is something that has to be ongoing. It's not remember once and everything will be okay. It is remember it regularly. Or as Jerry Bridges says, preach the gospel to yourselves every day. And you've heard that expression, that phrase. And the reason that's even there is because we forget Paul tells us to remember because we forget Jesus. And when we do, that's when we sin. David Powelson, author and counselor, he says this, when you actually remember God, you do not sin. The only way we ever sin is by suppressing God, by forgetting, by tuning out his voice, switching channels and listening to other voices. When you actually remember, you actually change. In fact, remembering is the first change. If you were to ask me, what is the most important thing you can do as a Christian to grow in faith? It is to remember. It's, if you're not finding 
progress in your life of faith in Christ, if you're not finding your heart warm to him, if you're not experiencing Christ daily in your life, it's probably because you have forgotten him. And it starts the moment you wake up. As soon as the alarm clock goes off, you arise. And the first thought is, oh no, I have this I have to do today. The remembering has to be ongoing all the time, everywhere. Sometimes you're talking to yourself. Sometimes you're thinking. Sometimes you're praying. If you can recall when we were talking about Nehemiah, his life of prayer was not that prayer was only certain seasons or moments or one time of the day. While that's important, but prayer is also unceasing, as Paul says as well. Because it's a constant, another way to describe prayer is remembering. You're remembering God. And as David Powelson writes so well, that when you remember God, you do not sin. For any of you who are fasting this week and praying, I'm not going to ask how many sins you committed this week or whether you prayed or not. But one thing for sure is that if you were fasting or praying, that you were a lot more intentional this week about focusing and fixing your eyes on Christ. And so probably, at the very least, even if you do sin, you're very aware of it. You're very aware of what is happening in your heart. And this is so critical to understanding the gospel of Christ. That to actively remember the truths about God, sometimes you have to say it to yourself, God is faithful. God is my rock. He is my shield. He is my fortress. He's my ever-present help in times of trouble. He will never leave me nor forsake me. God loves me. And you have to say it sometimes really fast and sometimes very slow. And sometimes you say it over and over again and repeat words of truths about God. You remember him. And in doing so, they will, it will suppress the many voices that are flooding our souls. That truly keeps us anxious and wondering. Also, we have to remember the separation and alienation from Christ. That we were once outsiders. And when you know what it feels like to be an outsider, you understand a little bit more about the gospel. If you have ever experienced that type of alienation forced alienation, or even any type of separation, of a sense of non-belonging. You know how terrible it feels. It can be on the schoolyard. In South Africa, in uh, apartheid South Africa, a lot of the black South Africans understood what alienation felt like. Japanese Americans experienced that in in the internment camps in the United States during World War II. The Jews experienced it. And some of you have experienced it in all sorts of different ways. When you don't fit or belong and you're an outsider separated from other people the in the outsider group, you understand the lessening of significance, the questioning of identity, and how it destroys your soul. But the tragic part of what Paul talks about when it comes to alienation is that the alienation happens not from some group of people who push you away and say, you don't, you're not a part of us. But the alienation that occurs in this instance is that we were the ones who alienated ourselves from God. 
We decided, I don't want to be with you. And that's what we learn about in verse 1 of chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Meaning, a sin is, I have decided, you know, instead of the song, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. It's, I have decided to follow my own way. No turning back, no turning back. That's sin. So alienation happens when I sin, not because God says, I don't want to be with you, but it's us saying, I don't want to be with you. And we're just going to go alone and go on this journey by myself, and I don't need you, oh God, at all. This is the tragedy of this type of alienation. And so unlike every instance of prejudice and racism and discrimination in world history, when it comes to God, we are the ones who are doing that to God. We're the separators. And that separation has reaps disastrous impacts on our own souls and our own psyche. Despair, loneliness, sorrow, darkened hearts, anger, bitterness, rage, discord, envy. That type of separation not only breaks the relationship between us and God, but the the chain reaction that it has towards others is dramatic. And I don't know if we will ever fully grasp and see the impact of that fully until there's perfect relationship with each one of us in heaven. We're going to go to heaven and we're going to say, I never realized how much the impact of my alienation from you, O God, dramatically affected my relationships to other people until you see the perfect relationship we will have. We also have to remember our tendency is to refuse that we are sinners. That So not only is it that we alienate ourselves, but we actually see God as the cause of all of our problems, and we actually do not believe that we're actually the ones doing the alienating. Paul describes it this way in verse 12, that we have no hope and without God in the world. It's the world's greatest problem, and yet there's a refusal to believe it. It keeps us from peace and reconciliation, both with God and with others. And it robs us of our lasting joy. But we cannot see this. Pastor Tim Keller tells a story of his two sons when they were young. They got into a fight just as they were leaving for Sunday worship, which for a pastor is always the best time for a fight. And one of them teased the other one. The other retaliated and punched him, which sounds so typical. Maybe that happened even today for some of you. And he says, I sat them down and said, I would just like you to tell me what you did wrong. So he's addressing both of them. And I never got it. If I wasn't the father, and if these weren't my sons, I'd be laughing if it hadn't been so recent. But I looked at them and said, just tell me whose fault it is. There's no way there's going to be any peace unless you're willing to see you are to blame. And each of them looked and said, who, me? You. It, It goes against our nature, doesn't it, to say, I am to blame. When there is a conflict between two people, I have rarely heard a conflict between two people where only one person, 100%, was 100% to blame. 
Usually when there's a conflict between two people, there's blindness on both sides to see the ways in which they are at fault. And so the way to go into a conflict and really actually address the heart issue is to say, tell me how you are to blame in this and see their response. Is it what Tim Keller says where someone will say, no, I'm not to blame at all. We've experienced that. Many of us have. But that's there because that's how we are towards God. I'm not to blame. You are. Or that woman there whom you gave to me, she's the one who gave me that fruit. She's the one you you put me into this marriage towards. Or that child is bringing the worst out of me. No, it's your, that's who you are. And until we recognize that, we will never experience grace. We won't. We can't. Because it keeps us locked from what God wants to reveal to us, which is that we actually need Christ. We need a Savior. Rather than saying, I am not to blame, it is, I see my blame. I see my need for a Savior. And that's where we also, as Paul says, we have to remember the cross. The cross forces us to face the one idea that we human beings hate. We need someone else to help us. We, our greatest enemy is me. And I need a savior. And until I get to the idea that, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, no hope without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Remember that we need the cross. The cross forces us to deal with this idea that Jesus isn't just a good moral teacher. That's not why he came. You know, the cross actually gets rid of that notion completely. It destroys the idea that Jesus is all about, well, I really like his morality. And it can't be that we come to church thinking, I just want to put my kids into a really nice moral situation so that they grow up having a good sense of right or wrong. Jesus doesn't allow that because he died on a cross. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Imagine you're taking the ferry from Alameda to San Francisco. And a man comes up to you and tells you a bunch of things that seem like some good moral sayings. Good things that you would imagine Buddha to say or Confucius to say. Something that sounds morally good, philosophically good. And then he says, I'm going to jump over the railing and drown in the water and die for you. And so he does it. So what would you think about that man? He has some really good sayings. He says some really good moral things. But then he says, bye-bye, I'm jumping into the water and die. For you, I think most of us would sit here thinking, that guy's a crazy man. He's a lunatic. I just talked to a lunatic. Uh, the reason why we think he's a crazy man is because we weren't in danger. We weren't dying. That's the only reason that it leads to that. But if we knew that boat was going down and it was going to create some sort of whirlpool vortex that you were going to be sucked in with the, you know, with the ferry. And that man said, I'm going to, as we're going down, I'm going to grab you. I'm going to hold you. I'm going to push you out and I want you to thrust and I'm going to push you out so that you can be freed. And he dies in the process. 
you would call that person your savior. Someone who rescued you, your lifeguard, your, you'd be eternally grateful. The only way you understand that someone is truly a savior is only if you actually believe you need saving. Otherwise, it sounds like lunacy. So for, if you are here hearing the gospel, hearing about Jesus for the first time, and you read the Bible and you think, wow, these are really nice sayings. But then you get to the cross. I understand why you would think it sounds crazy. This sounds crazy. And the reason why it would only sound crazy is if you actually think, but I'm actually a pretty good person. I don't need saving. I don't, I don't have anything wrong with me. Oh, but if you understand what is wrong. And that's what the church is composed of, right? We're not composed of a bunch of people who are, everything's going well. You know, I've been here long enough, 20 years, to see enough people go by and know enough of you long enough that I know that anyone who says, well, we never have problems. I've had couples say, we never fight. And then eventually on the 10th year, they're coming to me. We're having a talk. Maybe it's the 12th year. Maybe it's the 15th year. But eventually it comes because it's still hidden. It's still there. And the Bible is not a falsehood. There is truth. Remember, you were aliens. Remember, you were dead in your trespasses. So the cross leaves us no choice. Jesus either is a lunatic, as C.S. Lewis says, or he is Lord. But he is not a moral teacher. You cannot leave him at that. Because he never allows himself to be that to any of us. He's not just nice. He is far more than nice. So what that means is that the end goal of the Christian faith is not to be a good parent. Or to be someone who cares for the poor. Or someone who actually is kind and considerate and has good manners. That's not what it means to be a Christian. Because in that place, you know this to be true. If you go to church long enough or you know about anything about churches, what is the number one critique someone who does not know Christ have about the church? They're all a bunch of hypocrites. Why? Because everyone says, I'm actually a really good person. And I don't ever fail morally. And we try the best that we can to uphold that and make sure no one else knows that. I don't ever get sick. I don't ever struggle with my marriage. I don't, I'm not a bad person towards my kids until we ask the kids or the spouse. And that perspective robs us of our greatest witness. We need Jesus. We actually do. It should be that on vision meetings and in our gatherings, one of the things we're sharing is our difficulties, our strife. And I'm so thankful, sir. Some of you have publicly up here, I'm looking at some of you, have shared your story of faith. And some of those stories are dark. Some of them are ongoing struggles. But that, to me, reveals the gospel. We actually need rescuing. And that's good news. Because when you finally get to that place that we are all in need of Jesus, 
You know what happens then? When someone else comes into this room, the, the prostitute, the abuser, the woman who had an abortion, the abortion doctor, the homosexual, the, the person that you might think, oh, they, I don't want anyone, I don't want my children to be around these people, they're, they have, they, I don't want them to mess up my life. The drug abuser. Only when we are in a place where we see ourselves no different at the core than those people, those people, only then will we understand how to love, how to be gracious, how to extend the gospel of grace. That's called grace. But grace is hard. I think many of us think grace is just simply saying, I forgive you. Well, it's not just about that. It's about saying, I forgive you again and again, 77 times seven. It's about saying, I want my children to be with you even when it's risky, even when it's not so safe. It's about being in our communities and making an impact in conversations with the possibility of being rejected or perhaps even being persecuted. When we are able to experience the gospel of Christ this way, that's when change happens. And that's when we experience God's tremendous love. Secondly, is that the gospel at the center of our unity is found through this passage. It reminds us, and I'm going to go through this very quickly, but look at what happens in verses 14 through 22 when this gospel is known to us. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Division and hostility are gone. Conflict happens between two friends, spouses, children, parents and children, within the church, outside the church, at work. Conflict happens because we have this idea that I am not at fault, that I am the righteous one. Everything that I have done is correct, and there's nothing wrong with who I am or what I've done. And all of us struggle with that. There is not a person in this room who is exempt from that heart. But when Christ comes and when the cross happens, and again, the cross is Jesus saving us, rescuing us from ourselves. And then finally, our eyes open and we say, wow, I am to blame. I'm not that much different than you. You know what happens then is you start reconciling. You start looking around like Zacchaeus, who cheated all these people as a tax collector, as a, as a traitorous Jew, tax collecting for the, the pagan Roman government. And when Jesus came into his life and said, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree and I'm going to your house and I want you, and he invites all of his sinful friends, his tax collector friends. And he says, on this day, I will repay back three times fold what I have cheated people of. He has a heart. His natural instinct then is, I know what I am like now. So there's nothing you can say to me that makes me lower than what I know I am. And because of that, now I am free 
to be whom God loves me to be, his son. So I'm going to pay it all back. I don't even care about the money at all. It is a tragic thing that something like money or words in and of themselves bring alienation. And it's because, not because of the words or the money, but it's actually because of our view of ourselves before ourselves and not enough of a big enough picture of God himself in our lives. But when we see Christ at the center, division and hostility gone. Verse 15 says that we become a new people by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace. So in Christ now, or as Paul says to the Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. There's a new person. The Holy Spirit's residing. Jesus is residing in you. And he's conforming you to his will so that you're being changed. And that becomes a new. Verse 16 says that we become reconciled to God and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. So that relationship is fully restored. Verse 18 says we have full access to God. Verse 19 says we are no longer strangers and aliens. Verse 19 says we are citizens anew. You know, the United States of America is not our ultimate citizenship. It is heaven. You're not going to be citizens of heaven if you are in Christ. You are today. That is your passport. That's where your birth certificate now lies. And that's eternal. And it will never change. And then verse 19, we together are members of God's family. And then verse 21, we become the place that God dwells. I I hope you understand why I've entitled this message Supernatural Unity. It's not that, and I I know we think to ourselves, oh, um, only, you know, yes, it's really nice, but we're not really blood relatives. If Now, push comes to shove, would we really care for people in this way when it's most desperate, most difficult? I wanted to tell you a story, and, you know, I've been, during this week of fasting, I've been reading um, Nick Ripton's book, The Insanity of God. Boy, I I just recommend that book to every person. Easy read, super convicting. If you uh, don't want to be convicted, don't read that book. But if you want a book that's easy to read and very hard to read at the same time, read that book, The Insanity of God. And uh, basically... You know, he, as I said, he was a missionary in Somalia, and while he was in Somalia, because of him, many of the Somalian Christians had died, mainly because they were associating with him. And so militant Islamic groups were targeting anyone who he was relating to as Christians. So the church had gone from about a hundred something people. This is in a country of 12 million people had gone from about a hundred something people to four while he was there in four to five years. And then he was so discouraged, he left. And as soon as he left, his son died of, um, he had an asthmatic attack at 16 years old and died. And so they went back to the United States, as you can imagine, pretty deeply discouraged. 
but faith was still there. And what he and his wife decided to do is to, to, and partnering with their missions agency is to, he went to different places all around the world where people were suffering for the sake of the gospel. People were being persecuted. And what he wanted to do is to find out the answer to the question, what is God doing with this persecution? Because he saw such a darkness of it. And so the, the rest of the book is all about these stories of amazing stories of Christians who are being persecuted around the world. But the amazing part of their persecution is how much they saw persecution not as something to run away from, but something to see as a regular part of their life because they were living for Christ. And one of the stories he tells and I want to share with you is um, the time that he was visiting with the Chinese house churches. And he heard so many different stories but I'll read to you one of them. He says this. When the authorities arrested and imprisoned a house church pastor and father of seven children, they also placed his wife under house arrest. The pastor's wife was told that she was allowed to leave her home only to shop at the local market. That didn't seem to matter much to her. She had no money to purchase food at the market anyway. She had to rely on faithful fellow house church members for food. As it turns out, they provided for her well. She would wear a baggy smock with large pockets over her other clothes when she went to her village's open-air market. Walking slowly through the crowd as she wandered in and out among the stalls, she would notice a nudge here and a tug there until she had walked through the entire market. By the time she reached home, her pockets would be filled with tomatoes and onions and other items. Sometimes there was money in a pocket. She always seemed to come home with just enough food to feed her family of eight for another day. Occasionally, when those seven children got really hungry, the mother would be surprised to find a chicken on her front steps. One day, her oldest son was offered a job in a nearby city, and there just happened to be a bicycle leaning up against the front door. Seemingly out of the blue, the boy had transportation to and from work. The network of house churches did not have or want children uh, church buildings to gather in, or sanctuaries with rows of pews where people could sit in and worship on Sunday mornings. But they certainly knew what it meant to love and look after the concerns and needs of their members. They knew what it meant to be church for one another. I believe that their example could serve as an inspiration and challenge to other believers. And as I was preparing the message on Nehemiah, and we will talk about it next week on vision building. So it's the title of next week's message. And You'll see why. Um, I did it because it's such a great passage to talk about the church building and why we're doing it and what we want to use it for. But as I've been reading this book and thinking and processing and praying and uh, this week of fasting and prayer, I thought, oh, we have to remember, what is the church? The church is not a building. And as we try to think about how raising money for the building and what if all we have is a concrete box we've all as a staff we often talk about that we there's more costs that are coming in and it might be all we now can build is literally a concrete box but i read this passage uh, this story and i thought yes the church is not about a building the church is god's people and it's these people who are risking their lives to help another family. They are risking their lives. Why do they do it? 
because of the Savior. We are here together. Oh, I hope you're here not because we have a really great children's program or you love the music or you love sitting in a hard chair on Sundays. <laughs> I hope you are here because of the Savior. You know, when we have that, we are able to love difficult people. What happens is that people who are different from one another and we're able to welcome in different people, people of all places and races, people of different economic groups, personalities. I would say one of the most difficult distinctions is personality. Oh, they're too quiet. They're too loud, too full of themselves. They don't ever talk. So awkward to be with this person because they just never say anything and I'm doing all the talking and I'm burnt out. I'm so tired. It's, it's, I, th this person's old. This person's young. This person's married. This person's a teenager. This person's a child. This person's single. This person's, you know, they, they talk only about this. They, it is, if we were to, if God were to just take all of our conversations as to why we actually don't fit together, if that's what defines us, then we are not the church. But if what defines us is Christ rescued me, he saved me for himself so that I can be part of his family. And even though we might not, I have a hard, I mean, we have hard times with our own families, right? And their personality flaws and their, all the things that go wrong. If we cannot come together and say that we are together despite our differences, our personality quirks, the things that we have hurt each other with, and if we can't come together because of what Jesus has done, we are not the church. And we will never see unity. It has to be supernatural. And it is because God has done the work. And if you look at churches all around the world where the gospel is under the greatest tension and fire, you know what happens is that that's when you see the church thriving and united. Because what are they focusing on most? It isn't personalities or programs or music styles. It is Jesus. He is everything. And when that happens, we can withstand the fires. Literal and figurative. So... uh I'm excited to see what the Lord does this year. It's going to be a very unique year. It is, like I said, it's our 20th year. We're building a building. But it's more, so much more than that. I'm excited to see Jesus exalted and Christ glorified across the street, in our communities, and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, I am a astounded by how much you love us. You love me, despite me. As uh, Paul says in Ephesians, we were once dead in our transgressions. But how faithful you have been to us. I just thank you for churches like the church in Ephesus. I thank you for the church in China, for the church in Somalia, I thank you for the church in Ukraine, 
Bolivia, the church in Mexico. I thank you for the many believers of Christ who on this day are gathering, some openly like us in freedom, able to sing and shout aloud, and some hiding in a small house, just waiting for the police to come in and drag off a number of the pastor and all the different members of the church. What we have in common, O Lord, I pray, is that we have our first love, that the gospel of Jesus, the rescuer, the saver, the redeemer, he is the same here and to the ends of the earth. I pray, O God, that we would be united in that and that unity would propel us to go forth and to share the love of Jesus to those around us, to those in our communities, in our schools, in our world. I pray, O Lord, that that same gospel would propel us to forgive one another, to remember that we were once far off, that no one is righteous, no, not one. But in Christ, we are the household of God, And if we cannot come together as one body, no matter what happens, then boy, that's a testament to our lack of remembering of Jesus, what you have done for us. So I pray that you would open our eyes and help us to see that and to taste and see truly that the Lord is good. We pray that as we prepare our hearts for this time of communion, that we would remember what you have done for us this day and always. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.